just recently, uh, there was a, an article printed or published or posted uh, entitled 10 Ways People Power Can Change the World. Uh, they, they listed it or published it in the uh, context of the election and, and rallying and, and uh, giving people a voice or influence. And so in this article uh, about changing the world or impacting the world or affecting change, they mention things like boycotting, direct communication, shaming, harassing, legal action, protests. Does this sound familiar with what we're seeing and have seen for the recent months in the, our culture and in society? Voting, they said, can change the world. Campaigning, lobbying, hashtag advocacy. <laughs> now, some of us older people may not understand what that is, but the younger generation does. Hashtag advocacy, that's a social media term. Getting things trending on social media they said was a way to change the world, and I'm sure they're right. Storytelling was listed. Fundraising, and I thought this was interesting, blockading, or what they call occupying, for instance, like they've been, some have been doing across the country, Portland, Seattle, places like that. And then they listed just flat out civil disobedience, just going against the law. Uh, and disobeying the law for civic purposes or for civil rights, for the sake of civil rights. People power. Uh, we hear the phrase, the power of the people, or power to the people. People power. And can I tell you tonight that there's no greater people power than the power of praying people. Turn with me to James chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 13, and I want you to keep your Bible open tonight as we go through this text. We're going to break down these phrases and these statements by the Lord all the way through verse 18. So if you would stay with me tonight, I want to talk to you this evening on the power of praying people. The power of praying people. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't get saved, obviously, until after the resurrection. Before the death of Christ, during Jesus' public ministry, he really didn't regard Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't believe. Only after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus did James embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and obviously when he did that, his life was radically changed. He became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And when persecution broke out, obviously many in his congregation were scattered. They were scattered abroad throughout various regions of Palestine, outside of Palestine, in different regions such as Asia Minor, uh, and, and, and even literally just all, all throughout the world the Christians were scattered because of persecution. So here's James, the half-brother of Jesus. He has a shepherd's heart. He loves these Christians to whom he is writing, and he's addressing them, these who were scattered, these who were persecuted. So all through the book, 
uh, we understand that if someone had to give a uh, purpose, an overall theme to the book of James, it would be shoe leather Christianity, living the Christian life, living faith out in life. What does genuine faith, genuine spirituality look like in a person's life? James' emphasis as he is concluding his letter here in chapter 5 is on the church once again being right with God and being right with one another in the body. Prayer without a doubt is the greatest unused resource that we have as Christians. And as James is preparing to close out this letter, he turns our attention to some key pieces of instruction about this critical issue of prayer and the power of you and I unifying and uniting together in intercession. And he answers three key questions about praying and a praying people and being unified in prayer. So the first question he answers, church, is when should we pray? When should we pray? Look at verse 13. He says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So as you ask the question tonight, as we ask it, when should we as God's people pray? James seems to indicate here in the text that we are really literally to pray in all kinds of circumstances. Remember Ephesians 6, 18? The Apostle Paul says, praying always, always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing or in an unending way. Be always in the Spirit of prayer. So here in James 5, verse 13, it says, in times of trouble, we ought to pray and we're to pray more. He says in verse 13, he says, Is there anyone among you that are afflicted? Afflicted? That word literally means somebody going through or experiencing the experience of going through all different kinds of affliction. Multifaceted affliction. Now, affliction could be something very personal. It could be physical. It could be Financial, relational, spiritual, all kinds of afflictions and difficulties that you and I experience in this world, not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. You tell me the last time you had a day with no trouble, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that you've probably not had one of those yet in this world. The truth is we all face affliction and difficulty. James says... Is there anybody going through affliction? Let him pray. When we're going through times of suffering, pray. And then he says, uh, so we're to pray in times of trouble. My goodness, are we not experiencing all that right now? God says, I want you to pray. I want your first recourse is to, to, to prayer. I want it to be instinctive. 
Just something naturally that you do. Just spontaneously pray. Be a prayer. Be a prayer warrior. Gather together and pray. Unite with other brothers and sisters in Christ and pray. God says we ought to pray in times of trouble. Then He says also in verse 13 that we ought to pray in times of happiness. Times of prosperity. Not just in disadvantage, but times in advantage. Not just in adversity, but in prosperity. Times of happiness. Because he says in verse 13, notice it. He said, is there any among you that is merry or happy or going through a joyous time? Let him sing psalms. It's interesting that the word merry there uh, is not referring to outward circumstances, but literally is referring to an attitude. It's an attitude of cheerfulness or a joy of heart that one can have, whether in good times or in bad times. He says if you're uh, uh, someone and you have embraced this joyful spirit, this cheerfulness in your attitude, he says that person is to sing. Sing. That's what he says in verse 13. The word sing there is a word used for Singing sometimes with the stringed instrument and sometimes without. Let his heart be merry. Let him choose to sing and glorify God. It literally means sing a song of praise. Bring praise before God, even in the form of prayer. Man, when you think about praise and praising God, we can't help but think about the book of Psalms, the Hebrew hymn book. And you know, many of the psalms were worded in prayers. Petitions before the Lord, and those petitions contained praises to God and worship of God. And this tells us that, you know what, it, it's possible to be cheerful even when you're hurting. And so he says, hey, in times of trouble, pray more. In times of happiness and cheerfulness, pray and pray more. And then he said in verse 14, specifically in times of sickness, pray and pray more. He says in verse 14, is there anyone sick among you? The word sick there refers to physical illness. Is anybody in your local assembly going through sickness? Anybody in your family going through sickness? Anybody you know going through sickness? Anyone reading the letter James says? who's experiencing a physical ailment or difficulty, he says, pray. But he gets very specific in verse 14. He says, hey, you call the elders, you call the spiritual leaders of your congregation together, and you pray, and you have them pray over the one who was physically afflicted, who is sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And friend... As I think about this season, I think about many right now in our church body that are sick. They need God's physical touch. And he said, hey, you pray. It's not a futile exercise. It's not wasted. You're not wasting your breath, your effort, your tears, your heart, your emotions, your passion. It's never wasted. But God's keeping a record and the Lord hears. You going through affliction? Pray. Double down. Pray. Pray more. You having a good day? Great. Praise God and pray. 
You're going through sickness? Pray. Seek the face of God. So he tells us that we're to pray in all kinds of circumstances. When are we to pray? Really always. In good times and bad. Prosperous times and lean times. Stress-free times and stressful times. Pray. Every day, seek the face of God. But then he addresses a second question in verses 14 through 16. Verses 13 and 14, he addresses when we should pray. But then in verse 14, he talks about how we should pray. And he tells us that we are to pray in a particular way. That there is a certain way that God wants us to pray. First of all, in verse 14, he says that God wants us to pray with cooperation. Cooperation. Pray with cooperation. Pray with a cooperating spirit. Verse 14, he said, If there's any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. And the elders will come and let them pray over him. In other words, man, if there's a need, get other people involved. Get the help, the involvement, the agreement of other people in prayer. People that are godly, people that are spiritual, people that, that, that are in tune with the Lord. They know what it is to walk with God. They know what it is to have a genuine prayer life and they are in the habit of prayer and they understand the connection that we have with God through intercession. James says you gather the elders, the leaders for prayer and anointing with oil. Oil, it's interesting, was used in ancient times as a medicine. It denotes that the elders should be ready to offer physical help as well as spiritual help. That if there's anything they can do to meet a tangible physical need, then they ought to do it. It could be that the oil is a tangible, symbolic prop of healing, just like when Jesus used objects or props in the healing process in the Gospels. I think of Mark 7 as Jesus heals the deaf man and he uses uh, 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 something, a, a tangible expression of the healing. And then in Mark 8 with the blind man and the dirt and he applies it to the man's eyes. Remember that this is not an automatic guarantee here in verse 14. It's not an automatic guarantee that the healing will occur. It's just simply stressing that, you know what? God can heal. God does heal. And God wants spiritually in tune people to gather around people with needs and to pray. And that the power to heal is not in the oil, but the oil is a tangible physical representation of a spiritual reality that God can heal. God does heal. He is Jehovah Rapha. He is the God who is our healing. And just as in the Gospels when Jesus used the clay and the spittle, the healing power was not in the clay. The healing power was in the hand of Jesus, the ability of Jesus. Well, friend, any time, and there have been times when we have anointed 
individuals with oil. We have uh, uh, gathered as leadership and we've anointed uh, individuals on their head with, with olive oil. There's nothing mystical about that oil. It's purely symbolic. It's a representation of what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the book of James here. That the, that the ones who, who are in the habit of prayer, we gather around. and Man, every Christian should be able to do that, gather around. And here he specifies the elders of the church coming together with the express purpose of believing God, cooperating together and believing that, you know what, God has the power to heal. Christian, is it always God's will to heal? Physically? Of course, no, it isn't. If that were the case, the Apostle Paul would have been healed of his thorn in the flesh and his affliction. Many of the saints of God, all the saints of God through the ages, if it was always God's will to heal, certainly the Lord would have done that and delivered people. But you read Hebrews 11. God didn't always deliver and spare His people from pain or affliction. Sometimes God walked them smack dab right through the affliction. It lists others there, others at the end of Hebrews 11. And it talks about all these ones that God delivered. And then it said, and there were others whom the Lord chose not to deliver. So He teaches us that we are to pray with cooperation. We come together and pray. If there's any healing that occurs, the Lord is the one who does it. It's not the oil. It's not the elders. So he says in verse 14, I want you to pray with cooperation. Question for us. Are we cooperating with one another in prayer? Are we unifying with one another in prayer? And then he says we pray, secondly, with confidence. Confidence. We're praying with confidence. Verse 14 and 15, listen to what our Bible says. Uh, notice that he says, when you come together, you agree, you pray with cooperation, and then you pray over the sick person. You pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise him up. The emphasis here is believe that God will powerfully work according to His plan. Again, not an absolute, unequivocal guarantee that in every single case, God heals physically immediately in that present moment. But it is simply a recognition that God is sovereign over the situation. And we believe that if, yes, according to God's will, He can. Many times He does. But He's good nonetheless. We believe Him and we, we pray confidently that God knows. He's already in charge. He's already on the scene. He's already aware of everything that's happening, everything that's going on. We pray with cooperation. We pray with confidence. And then he tells us in verses 15 and 16 to pray with confession. Pray with confession. He says, notice it, verse 15, If any have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults 
one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. He says, listen, when you come together and you're agreeing together in prayer, he said, you confess your sins to one another with a repentant heart. If I have grieved someone, I need to go make it right. I need to confess my sin. I need to acknowledge the transgression, the offense that was committed sometimes against that person, maybe against someone else. Sometimes it's just directly against God. Acknowledge the fault. Acknowledge the sin. And that's why recently, a week and a half ago, or, or, or actually two weeks ago in the Sunday morning message, we talked about as husbands and wives, how few of us actually as husbands and wives pray and pray through issues and difficulties in our marriage. The easier thing to do is just to fight and be combative. And God says, no, that's, that's, that's not what I want. I want you to pray. I want you to be together. Be unified. And if, uh, if you need to make some things right with one another, make some things right and pray. Pray together. Well, friend, I want you to hear me. Hear my heart tonight. If there's anyone in our church body or any brother or sister in Christ that you can't in good conscience yoke arms with and get down on your knees with and pray together with, then God help us. That means there's something in our spirit not in harmony with that brother or sister. If there's any believer I can't pray with in good conscience, then I need to deal with that in my spirit. I need to confess that. God says, I want there to be a cooperation. I want there to be unity when you pray. You pray with confidence. You pray with confession. If there's something you need to get right with the Lord, get it right. If I regard iniquity, David said in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So he says you pray with cooperation. You pray with confidence. You pray with confession. And then he says in verse 16, you pray with conviction. The effectual, verse 16, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Effectual. Fervent prayer. Passionate prayer. Praying with conviction. Praying with an earnestness. Praying fervently. I'm... Sometimes I think we're too conscious of specific words that we pray aloud and not conscious enough of a lack of fire and heart and passion. John Bunyan said that God would rather, God would rather us pray with all heart and no words than all words and no heart. God says, I want you to pray with conviction. One writer it says that James's point here is that in your trials, you don't need power gained by money or favoritism or selfishness or fighting or swearing. He covers all that in the book. But he says you use the power of prayer for which you need righteousness. <laughs> Commit yourself to doing what is right without compromise. Then you may rely on God in prayer for every... Every single one of your needs. So then as we close the program and the message tonight, God tells us why we should pray. You see, we are to pray 
at all times. We are to pray in a certain way, and we are to pray understanding the good that God accomplishes through prayer. Preacher, does it do any good? Oh, my friend, absolutely. Look at how much can be accomplished by prayer. He says that fervent praying, righteous praying avails much. Prayer allows us to express our utter dependence upon God. That's verse 13. Prayer puts us in harmony with God's sovereign will and plan. Verse 15. Prayer makes us more aware of and more determined to repent of personal sins. Verse 15. Prayer engages us in the glorious work of intercession for others. Verse 14. And prayer joins us with the Lord as He accomplishes His purpose in this earth and in the lives of people. That's verses 16, 17, and 18. So all this begs the next logical question. Will you, will I prioritize prayer in my life? Will you prioritize prayer this week in your life? Scheduled prayer, yes. Spontaneous prayer, yes. Secret prayer, yes. Specific prayer, yes. Let's covenant before the Lord to prioritize prayer so that we can know what it is to experience the power of a praying people. Our Father, we come before you in Jesus' name in the midst of hurt in our congregation, chaos in our world, frustration over these circumstances.